I'm very happy to welcome Dr. Peter Krasniewski uh, to Silverstream once again. And today, especially uh, given that it is the octave day of the feast of our Father St. Benedict. Peter is a Benedictine oblate. Uh, his wife Clarissa is an oblate of Silverstream. Uh, so it's a very auspicious day, Peter, for, for this, this conference. We will incline the ear of our hearts to you. Thank you, Father Pryor. So it is indeed uh, a joy to be with you to celebrate the octave of our Holy Father, Benedict. As you can probably guess, I'm a great fan of all octaves, vigils, commemorations, duplications, and repetitions, uh, useless or not, um, not to mention the episodes in the life of St. Benedict that we're reading at supper, which are um, endlessly uh, illuminating and entertaining. So it's a perfect time to be here. Um, In my talk, which is called Liturgical Obedience, The Imitation of Christ and the Seductions of Autonomy, I will make some provocative claims. It seems to be expected of me by this time. Uh, And I expect to be challenged or at least queried by you after I'm through. What does it mean to live a liturgical life in the midst of the modern wasteland? The holy rites are our lifeline, our umbilical cord to Holy Mother Church. They keep us nourished and safe in the valley of the shadow of death. The original Death Valley is not in California, but in hell. Hell is truly the valley of death, because one who lives there, or rather continuously dies there, is stuck down in the depths and cannot get up to the high places, up to Mount Zion and the city of the living God. Scripture calls the fallen world in which we men are living the valley of the shadow of death, because it is under the power, limited and destined to fail, but nonetheless real, of the evil one. Hence, when we examine what is the case in Satan's kingdom, we will also acquire a better understanding of how he is attempting to undermine us here in this world. No vita liturgica in hell. Hell has no liturgy. The fallen angels have no common work of charity, no common work of divine worship. As a desert father once said, the devil has no knees. His mentality is non-serviam, and an angel is pure mentality. In a sense, they are what they are thinking. Moreover, there is no proper hierarchy in hell. Contrary to the prevailing democratic way of thinking, liturgy is essentially connected with hierarchy. Christ, the high priest, is the one who leads the worship, and he deigns to allow the participation of the priest, the deacon, the subdeacon, the ministers, the cantors, the choir, the laity, each in his or their own place and function. One cannot demand or create a liturgical role. One rather receives it and enters into it. To be liturgical is to submit freely to an external rule, an order not of our own making, a complex whole of which we are humble parts. There is something ecstatic about liturgy because it takes us beyond ourselves into roles that are not simply inborn or inherited or fashioned, into realms that are, strictly speaking, off-limits for mere creatures, into actions and passions that are supernatural in both their source and their goal. 
even at its most plodding and unremarkable, even when melodies are maimed and attention wanders, our chanting or recitation of the divine office has us standing outside ourselves. Our feet were standing in thy courts, O Jerusalem. The blind and the halt are going on pilgrimage to Jesus. Given how intimately bound up our human nature, rationality, and language, our very action of placing on our lips the words of another is a reformation of our humanity, a putting on of Christ, a renunciation of the ambitions of Babel, and a quiet welcoming of the spirit of Pentecost. I'll come back to that in a a moment. For all of these reasons, the devil has and can have no liturgy. Although he is compelled to submit to the rule of the Almighty, he does not wish to submit, and therefore cannot enter into the joy of his Lord. He recognizes no rule but his own will, which is why there is no peace in hell. He has not the humility to allow himself to be placed as part in a larger whole, and to take for his own the words of another. He has no desire to suffer the ecstasy of love. As our Lord says in St. John's Gospel, He was a murderer from the beginning, and he stood not in the truth, because truth is not in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father thereof. John 8.44 I want to focus on this last verse. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father thereof. Jesus speaks here with metaphysical and psychological precision. The devil is a murderer because he envies God's life and takes it away from those who have it, rather than receiving this life as a gift and promoting the same gift in others. He stands not in the truth, because truth for a creature is always the adequatio rei et intellectus, the harmony between the intellect and its object, such that the intellect is measured by the reality outside itself. The created intellect has truth, it contains truth, but it cannot be the truth, for that is God's prerogative alone. In this sense, truth can only be in us, but never of us, as if we were its origin or measure. Hence, the person who rejects the truth of God ends up evicting truth from his mind and begins a career of falsification, both in the form of self-deception... We see how the devil throughout the Gospels, and indeed across all of history, acts as if he could actually defeat our Lord. And in the form of deception of others, we see how the father of lies whips people into a frenzy of lying, manipulation, and mindless conformism. The devil and any of his imitators speaketh of his own. He will speak only the shallow worldly wisdom that is his mental content. He will spout sophistry, banality, and cynicism. This is what comes of not being willing to take for his own the wiser, deeper, brighter, truer words of another, his creator. Lucifer, as his very name implies, bearer of light, was created to mirror the word and in this way to be resplendently beautiful in his own nature. He abandoned the word and thus became ugly in spite of his wondrous nature. A lake, when still, can take on the form of mountains against an evening sky, and in this way go beyond its nature of water to partake of the natures of earth, air, and fire. In contrast, a lake, when turbulent and muddy, in some way seems to lose the better virtues of water itself, 
such as its cleanliness, chastity, and ability to slake thirst. The clear lake becomes more than itself through its reflection. The muddy lake becomes less than itself. I am reminded of what Herbert McCabe once remarked. Quote, that is the theology behind the story of the Garden of Eden. There was no way that human beings could be simply human. They had to be either superhuman or inhuman. Unquote. Upward ascent or downward spiral. One of the great antiphons for Pentecost vigorously conveys this truth. Repleti sunt omnes spiritus sancto et ceperunt loqui. Alleluia, alleluia. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak. Alleluia, alleluia. We must first be filled with the Spirit of God before we have anything worthwhile to say. And our first word as newborn infants will be alleluia, that is, praise the Lord. This, therefore, will be the newborn church's first word, a word of pure praise offered to God like sweet incense. As the psalmist exclaims, Ex ore infantium et lactentium perfecisti laudem. Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes thou hast perfected praise because of thy enemies, that thou mayest destroy the enemy and the avenger. Psalm 8, verse 3. The word infans, out of the mouth of, of infants, the word infans literally means the one who cannot speak who must learn how to speak by constantly listening to his mother, receiving language from her mouth as he receives milk from her breast. This life of dependency thwarts the advance of the enemy, Lucifer, who, unlike the child, grasps at independence and will not praise the Lord. As for the Christian, so for the church. Whenever the church wishes to live in the prime of her youth, she will give first place to offering up the sacrifice of praise. Intro ibo araltari dei ad deum quilitificat juventutem meam. When we are animated by the Spirit, we speak the sacrifice of praise. We become the sacrifice. Conversely, when we speak of ourselves, this means both from ourselves and about ourselves, we speak nothing, a lie. If the Church places anything else prior to the sacred liturgy worthily celebrated, she is abandoning her first love and starting down a path of harlotry like ancient Israel playing the whore with the false gods of the surrounding nations. There is a direct lineage from Babel to Canaan, Canaan to Babylon, Babylon to Gehenna. First, there is Babel. When we abandon sacred tradition which unifies us to one another, to the host of saints and to the transcending God, our penalty is a babble of vernacular tongues, a smorgasbord of options, an incoherent pluralism in the Ars Celebrandi. Second, there is Canaan. Our bad liturgical mentality and habits are a breeding ground for open and hidden forms of adultery, idolatry, atheism, and apostasy. Third, there is Babylon. We enter into captivity to our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We enter into exile, far from the fatherland, far from our own identity. We are dwelling in the furthest regio dissimilitudinis, in a condition of existential alienation accompanied by an utter lack of willpower to regain our home, to live up to sacrificial demands, or to bring our fellow men to the good. Fourth and lastly, there is Gehenna. 
This entire downward spiral is a spiral of increasing self-indulgence and decreasing discipline. One is, so to speak, dispersed, wasted, spread out, thinned out, until one is a caricature of one's former substantial self. This, certainly, is what we have seen not only with the liturgy, but also with the priesthood, religious life, the missions, catechesis, the fine arts. When one gives up the super-substantial bread of tradition with the Most Holy Eucharist at its heart, one descends first into gourmet food, then declines into fast food, and finally lapses into starvation. Given what I have said about liturgy as inherently hierarchical, otherworldly, ecstatic, and absolute in its demands over us, it is entirely in keeping with the devil's strategy to destabilize, democratize, secularize, and relativize the liturgy here on earth. He seeks to loosen our bond with a fixed and efficacious tradition. He seeks to smudge in our perceptions and eventually to obliterate in our minds the distinction between sacred and profane, formal and informal, fitting and unfitting. He seeks to darken or blot out the manifestation of the heavenly hierarchy in the earthly distinctions of sacred ministers and their complementary but non-interchangeable roles. He seeks to persuade us, particularly the clergy, that the liturgy is not the font and apex of the Christian life, but only one means among many for advancing a Christian agenda. Now, the devil knows he cannot prevent some advancement of the Christian faith, but he is well aware that nothing comes close to the liturgy's power for hallowing the name of God as he deserves. Its power of establishing his kingdom in our midst, giving us our daily nourishment, and moving us to the forgiveness of sins and the avoidance of sins. In truth, liturgy is an end in itself because it is God's peculiar possession and makes us his peculiar possession. If the devil can convince us that liturgy is not an end in itself, but rather that it is a helpful tool we should manipulate for ulterior ends, then he has already won half the battle for souls. He has shaken our fundamental orientation to the heavenly Jerusalem and the kingdom that will have no end. If angels had bodies... The good angels would sing, dance, paint, sculpt, and build beautifully. As it is, they might view our bodily religion with a holy envy, since we have a way to externalize our interior devotion, to give a semi-permanent being to our thoughts and feelings as monuments of faith and witnesses to truth, speaking a word made flesh in a distant likeness to the incarnation of the word. With a correct instinct, Fra Angelico has depicted angels dancing circle dances with holy souls in the garden of heaven. But the evil angels would not sing. They could not execute the demanding and liberating dance of the liturgy. They could not paint, sculpt, or build. If they attempted to do any of these things, it would run along the lines of atonal music, abstract expressionism, primitivism, and postmodernism, only even worse. As a modern writer said, all the artist can produce with, original, or with entire originality is disorder. It is as true in art as it is in morality that everyone who speaks out of himself is a liar. In sharp contrast is the Son of God who said, I do nothing of myself, but as the Father hath taught me, these things I speak. John eight twenty eight. Our Lord so wishes to emphasize this point that he patiently repeats it in varied language. 
Quote, For I have not spoken of myself, but the Father who sent me, he gave me commandment what I should say and what I should speak. And I know that his commandment is life everlasting. The things, therefore, that I speak, even as the Father said unto me, so do I speak. John twelve forty nine to 50 The words that I speak to you, I speak not of myself, but the Father who abideth in me, he doth the works. John fourteen ten. Our Lord goes so far as to say in the fifth chapter of John, I cannot do anything of myself. Or as another translation has it, I am able to do nothing from myself. John 5.30 Here we have perhaps the most radical statement of the priests being tethered to the liturgy. It is a tethering so complete that he may truthfully say, I cannot do otherwise. If he thinks or acts otherwise, he has not yet become a slave in imitation of the one who assumed the likeness of a slave. The exact and copious instructions given under the Old Covenant for the priests and their worship, occupying a large part of the Pentateuch, are given for a permanent reason. They are not superseded in the New Covenant, but fulfilled perfectly in Christ, in whom the internal and infinite word of God, sovereignly free, is bound permanently and singularly to this human flesh, this face, hands, heart, and voice and who communicates his singularity to us in the form of distinctive liturgical traditions developed under the guidance of his Holy Spirit. This is why our Lord tells us, He that shall break one of these least commandments, and shall so teach men, shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But he that shall do and teach, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 5.19 The church's liturgy applies this verse to her saints, who are still doing and teaching the least of the commandments in their Christian transposition and meaning. As our model, let us ponder Christ, praying the Psalms of David. Here we have the new Adam, father of the world to come, praying the old Psalms of a child of Adam. The word who enlightens all men and inspirits the prophets is the very author of these Psalms. They are his own creation no less than the heavens and the earth and all the host of them. Yet the word made flesh submits to these words as prayers already there, which he planted in history for the formation of his own sacred heart, for giving his lips and lungs and vocal cords their best exercise, for joining him as fully as possible with the people of Israel and the human condition he assumed. Since we are little images of the image of the Father, the Psalms are given to us as well as the vehicle of our innermost thoughts and feelings, so that shaped by them we may express what is deepest and truest in us, in our human nature divinized. Humility of service in fixity of form. One of the great strengths of the traditional Latin liturgy is that it leaves nothing to the will or imagination of the priests, and the same may be said of every minister in the sanctuary. It choreographs his moves, dictates his words, shapes his mind and heart to itself to make it utterly clear that it is Christ who is acting in and through him. In the words of the psalmist, Know ye that the Lord, he is God, he made us, and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Psalm 99. Sheep are to follow the lead of their shepherd. The clergy is not and will never be the first principle of the liturgy. 
as St. Thomas says with sobering humility, the priest or other cleric is, quote, an animate instrument of the eternal high priest. And he continues, holy orders does not constitute a principal agent, but a minister and a certain instrument of divine operation, unquote. Ministers are like rational hammers or chisels or saws by which a greater artisan will accomplish his work while conferring on them the immense dignity of resting in his hand and partaking of his action. Here is how Monsignor Ronald Knox expresses it. Quote, The philosopher Aristotle, in defining the position of a slave, uses the words, A slave is a living tool. And that is what a priest is, a living tool of Jesus Christ. He lends his hands to be Christ's hands, his voice to be Christ's voice, his thoughts to be Christ's thoughts. There is, there should be, nothing of himself in it from first to last, except where the Church graciously permits him to dwell for a moment in silence on his own special intentions for the good estate of the living and the dead. Those who are not of our religion are puzzled sometimes, or even scandalized, by witnessing the ceremonies of the Mass. It is all, they say, so mechanical. Now, this is, he's writing this in the mid-1950s. But you see, it ought to be mechanical, They are watching not a man, but a living tool. It turns this way and that, bends, straightens itself, gesticulates, all in obedience to a preconceived order, Christ's order, not ours. The Mass is best said, we Catholics know it, when it is said so that you do not notice how it is said. We do not expect eccentricities from a tool, the tool of Christ. Unquote. Monsignor Knox. The clergy are privileged tools, to be sure, but they are still tools. And the liturgy remains the work of Christ, the high craftsman, the carpenter of the Ark of the Covenant, the architect of the heavenly Jerusalem, the new song and its cantor. In its external form, in text and music and ceremonial, the liturgy should luminously proclaim that it is the work of Christ and his church, not the product of a charismatic individual or a grassroots community. We find this attitude throughout the rule of St. Benedict. In chapter 5, the patriarch of Cenobites gives as the very root of humility that a man must live not by his own desires and passions, but by the judgment and bidding of another. In his brisk Latin, ambulantes alieno judicio et imperio. When St. Benedict comes around to ordering the monastic liturgy, he makes continual reference to how things are done elsewhere. The psalms prayed by our fathers, the Ambrosian hymn, the canticles used by the Church of Rome. Even when fashioning his monastic cycle of prayer, he is constantly looking to the models already in existence. This is the true spirit of liturgical conservatism, piety towards elders and the imitation of Christ. We are not the ones who determine the shape of our worship. We receive it in humility as an alien judgment that we make our own. To do otherwise is to put the axe to the tree of humility. In like manner, chapter 7 warns us against doing our own will, lest we become corrupt and abominable. Liturgical prayer has always been the foremost way of inculcating submission to Christ and his church so that we can learn his ways and assimilate his prayer and drink of his wisdom, which will certainly not be something we ourselves could have cooked up. Thus we take his yoke upon us, the yoke of tradition. 
prior to the middle of the 20th century, it was taken for granted in Catholic circles that it is a special perfection of the sacred liturgy to be fixed, constant, stable, an immovable rock on which to build one's spiritual life. The liturgy's numerous and exacting rubrics were understood as guiding the celebrant along a prayerful path of submissive obedience in which he could submerge his personality into the person of Christ and merge his individual voice with the chorus of the church at prayer. The formal hieratic gestures transmitted an eternally fresh symbolism while limiting, if not eliminating, the danger of subjectivism and emotionalism. The priest or other minister was conformed to Christ the servant, who came not to do his own will, but the will of him who sent him. He is commanded what to speak and what to do. He never speaks of himself. The father who abides in the son does the work of the son, and the son who abides in the priest likewise does the work of the priest. In this way, even as the son was emptied of glory in taking on the form of a slave, so too is the priest who enters his kenosis. By the sharing of the hiddenness, humiliation, passion, death, and descent of Christ, the priest merits a share in his resurrection, ascension, and glorification as judge. Even in their smallest details. In an interview in February 2016, Bishop Athanasius Schneider was asked what lessons he has learned from celebrating the traditional form of the Mass. Here is the bishop's revealing response. So this is not on your sheet here. Bishop Bishop Schneider says, The deepest lesson I have learned from celebrating the traditional form of the Mass is this. I am only a poor instrument of a supernatural and utmost sacred action whose principal celebrant is Christ, the eternal high priest. I feel that during the celebration of the Mass, I lose in some sense my individual freedom For the words and the gestures are prescribed even in their smallest details, and I am not able to dispose of them. I feel most deeply in my heart that I am only a servant and a minister, who yet with free will, with faith and love, fulfill not my will, but the will of another. Let us ponder for a moment with the help of Mother Catherine Mechtil Debar how much a priest or a monk stands to gain or lose by his cooperation or lack of cooperation with the smallest details of the liturgical rite bequeathed to him by tradition and ecclesiastical law. In her correspondence with the Countess of Chateauvieux, Mother Mechtil writes, this is the first quotation, The first thing I notice in you, my very dear daughter, is that you do not have enough esteem for small things. You do not consider them in the light of divine providence. That is why you have little attention and respect for them, and you lose therein a great deal of grace. God sometimes asks only for a small act of fidelity in order to make us great saints. You should always be in a state of holy and loving attention towards God in order to give yourself to him in all ways. If you could conceive the loss you cause when you act in a purely human way, you would be inconsolable. Is it not a great fault in a soul who is able to give glory to God and who nevertheless deprives him of it in order to give precedence to his own reasoning that the small actions of life are only trifles and that they do not need to be governed? Oh, my child, if you had truly understood how you are ransomed and how you belong to Jesus Christ, you would have much more solicitude about honoring him. If one beat of your heart does not belong to you, 
then so much the more your smallest action, which is always more extended than one heartbeat. In these words, we find a striking anticipation of the little way of St. Therese. Mother Mechtild sees clearly that small acts of fidelity are the proving ground of our desire to be great saints, and that we should try never to act in a purely human way out of our own creaturely resources. Note how the traditional Roman liturgy keeps after us in a thousand little ways to place us in a state of holy and loving attention towards God, as she recommends. Not one word or motion is considered a trifle that does not need to be governed. All actions are ordered to honoring him. Mother Mechtild amplifies this point in a marvelous passage from the same correspondence with the Countess. So here's the second passage. The gospel tells us today in two words what Christian holiness consists in. It is a wonderful lesson. Listen to this, please. The law says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. Ponder these things well and you will see how much you are required to give to God, even to the smallest of your actions. You will find in an infinity of places in Holy Scripture your incapacity to dispose of yourself, indeed even one of your thoughts, if you do not want to steal it from Jesus Christ. For by right you cannot. You have been bought. The one who buys the tree buys the fruit. Thus you are not your own. Ponder this truth well. Repeat often these words. I am not my own. I belong to Jesus Christ. He has ransomed me by love. I am thus necessarily the slave of his love. O worthy slavery. You see next how much you are obliged to give yourself to him. That is, to consent to all the rights, powers, and authority he has over you, and to remain in him. That is, to never depart from his holy presence, and to do all things by his spirit. As much as, pos- as is possible for you, to never have in your ideas any other object than him. In short, that his pure glory cause you to act in everything, even to the least of your actions. Do not think that there is anything small in regard to God. All is great. All is holy. His love sanctifies everything. Be thus very exact in the smallest things. All is done for a great God. It is necessary that you do everything mindfully, that is to say, with attention to God and with a simple desire to glorify and please him in everything. He wants you to have this fidelity in the smallest things, and then he will raise you to even greater ones. The man who does not value the little things will soon fall into great disorders. I'm really struck by the liturgical implications of that last statement. The man who does not value the little things will soon fall into great disorders. How compelling is Mother Mechtild's doctrine of holy slavery to Christ, expressed in the constant giving over of every little thing, every small act done for the great God, the Lord of heaven and earth. We are looking here at a gloss on our Lord's own teaching. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in that which is greater, and he that is unjust in that which is little is unjust also in that which is greater. Luke 16.10 Note our Lord's emphasis on justice. The one who is unfaithful to God in little matters will prove unjust to him in greater ones too. Not unloving, but unjust. That's the emphasis. Here our Lord refers to the virtue of religion, that is, giving to God that which we owe him to the best of our abilities. It's a matter of justice. 
If we do not give him our controlled limbs, our bows, genuflections, kisses, averted eyes, and careful pronunciation of syllables, why would we deceive ourselves into thinking that we shall give him our mind and will, our love, our service to others? The school of utmost fidelity in small things, as well as great ones, is par excellence the sacred liturgy, wherein we obey little rubrics as we handle the very flesh and blood of God. Prompted by Mother Mechtild's teaching, should we not say that a liturgy that offers the celebrant or the participant a greater number of opportunities to submit to the mind of another and serve his will, especially in the smallest details, is a liturgy that will produce more abundant fruits of holiness? If I may coin a phrase, this is nothing other than the liturgical little way. The teaching of St. Therese applied to that area in which it had always been practiced without fanfare until recent decades, but in which it is now threatened with extinction. These seductions of autonomy. The foregoing observations should make us nervous about one of the most notable novelties in the Missal of Paul VI and in all the revised liturgical books, namely, that by which the celebrant is given many options among which he may choose, as well as opportunities for crafting his own speech, quote, in these or similar words, unquote. In the action of selecting options and extemporizing texts, the celebrant no longer perfectly reflects the word of God, who, as the perfect image of the Father, receives his words and does not originate them, who does the will of another and not his own will, as we saw in all of those quotations from the Gospel of John. The elective and extemporizing celebrant does not show forth the fundamental identity of the Christian, one who receives and bears fruit like the Blessed Virgin Mary, one who conceives with no help of man by the descent of the Spirit alone. Instead, he adopts the posture of one who originates. He removes this sphere of action from the master to whom he reports. He carves out for himself a zone of autonomy. He denies the Lord the privilege of commanding him and deprives himself of the guerdon of submission. For a moment, he leaves the narrow way of being a tool and steps onto the broad way of being somebody. He becomes not only an actor, but a playwright. His free choice as an individual is exalted into a principle of liturgy. But since free choice is antithetical to liturgy, as a fixed ritual received from our forebears and handed down faithfully to our successors, Choice tends rather to be a principle of distraction, dilution, or dissolution in the liturgy than of its well-being. The same critique may be given of all of the ways in which the new liturgy permits indeterminate freedom of speech, bodily bearing, and movement to to the celebrant. Such voluntarism strikes at the very essence of liturgy, which is a public, objective, formal, solemn, and common prayer in which all Christians are equally participants even when they are performing irreducibly distinct acts. The prayer of Christians belongs to everyone in common, which means it cannot belong to anyone in particular. The moment a priest invents something that is not common, that is, predetermined, he sets himself up as a clerical overlord vis-a-vis the people who must now submit not to a rule of Christ in the church but to the arbitrary rule of this individual. I am sure every one of us has experienced this phenomenon at one time or another. As we have seen, our Lord called the devil a liar because he speaks from himself. 
he vainly endeavors to pull out of his own finite mind a word that is sufficient, or we might say self-sufficient, and he always fails. Private initiative by itself can never equal the demands of the public wheel. In the liturgy above all, we must never speak from ourselves, but only from Christ and his beloved bride, the church. Now, I want to comment a little bit on a couple of psalms. Psalm 115 and Psalm 15. Um, so you have those on, on, the, on the back. Psalm 115, which the old Roman Missal proposes as a prayer of preparation for the celebrant, sums up everything we have been saying to this point. And, and I find it to be increasingly the case as the years go on that I, that I find everything that I'm thinking, I find it in the psalms again and again and again. Um, I said in my excess, every man is a liar. What shall I render to the Lord for all the things he hath rendered unto me? The psalmist admits that fallen man, like the devil, is a liar. He asks what he should give in response for all that the Lord has already given him in the liturgy, the spirituality, the doctrine, the discipline of the church. And he immediately continues, I will take the chalice of salvation and I will call upon the name of the Lord. As if to say, only through the liturgy itself, which does not depend on me or proceed from me, can I make an adequate return to him. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints, namely that cloud of witnesses who were sanctified by this liturgy, taking its yoke upon their necks. O Lord, for I am thy servant, I am thy servant and the son of thy handmaid. I am the servant of him who became a servant for me, who serves me with his own precious body and blood in exchange for my rational service. I am the son of his mother, the handmaid of the Lord. Thou hast broken my bonds, namely the bonds of self-will, self-determination, self-inflation, which hold me down to the earth, to prevailing fashion, to the spirit of the age, to the expectations of my social group or stratum, to the gross or subtle ideologies of my time. Being thus set free by the words and work of another, I will sacrifice to thee the sacrifice of praise, and I will call upon the name of the Lord." So in some ways, I see Psalm 115 as a kind of meditation on, on this whole um, 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 constellation of ideas. Right? Or as it says in another psalm, Psalm 15, and by the way, I'm not going to comment on all of these verses. It would take too long. I have said to the Lord, thou art my God. Thou art my God, for thou hast no need of my goods. The Lord is the portion of my inheritance and of my cup. The Lord is the portion. It is thou that wilt restore my inheritance to me. The lines are fallen unto me in goodly places, for my inheritance is goodly to me. The Lord truly has no need of our paltry goods that we think we can contribute. Rather, we have need of the goodly inheritance and the overflowing cup he has prepared for us over the ages and now offers to us in lines of prayer and rubric set forth in front of our eyes and placed into our hands. The lines are fallen unto me in goodly places. The fruit of this obedience to an external rule is an immense interior peace, analogous to the peace described by Mother Mechtilde in her treatise, The True Spirit of the Perpetual Adorers of the Most Holy Sacrament of the Altar. And this is the the little quotation on the first page. 
She writes, All happiness is enclosed in the divine will, and only a soul possessed by it is happy and enjoys even in this world a foretaste of paradise. Everything good follows from it. There is no trouble or anxiety, no inconstancy or pretension, no eagerness or sadness, no fear or darkness. All is serene in the divine will. All is light and clarity. All there is immovable. If everything good follows from the divine will, it is no less true that everything evil flows from the creature's abandonment of God, the root and strength of its being. Without me, you can do nothing, as our Lord says. As Jacques Maritain observes, this statement can be taken two ways, in its obvious meaning and in a paradoxical meaning. At face value, our Lord is saying that without him, without his grace, without the branch living from the sap of the vine, we cannot do anything supernaturally good, pleasing to God, or meritorious. Without me, you can do nothing. But paradoxically, our Lord is also telling us, when you act without me, what you end up doing is precisely nothing. When you act on your own, you are perfectly capable of doing nothing, and the more you act apart from me, the more nothingness you will produce. It's as if one were to say, the one thing I can do apart from Christ is to sin, to introduce disorder, or to render something duller, flatter, or emptier than it was or would have been. This, too, has liturgical implications. Should we be surprised that churches have emptied when the very presuppositions of the liturgical form and its rubrics allow us to do what is in our own heads? Apart from Christ, we do nothing well, and the result is nothing good. The deepest cause of the missionary collapse of the church in many places is that we have lost our institutional and personal subordination to Christ the High Priest, the word to whom we lend our mouth, our hands, our bodies, our souls. For the past 50 years, it has not been perfectly clear that we are in fact ministers and servants of another, intelligent instruments wholly at his disposal. On the contrary, the opposite message has been promoted over and over again, whether in words or in deeds. We have come of age. We are shaping the world, the church, the mass, the entire Christian life, according to our own lights and for our own purposes. It is not difficult to see that this is an, is an inversion of the preaching of Christ and the tradition of the church, and that it will not and cannot produce renewal, but rather confusion, infidelity, boredom, and desolation. We see here an exact parallel to what has happened with marriage. When so-called free love entered into the picture, out went committed love and heroic sacrifice, and in came lust, selfishness, dissatisfaction, and an unspeakable plague of loneliness. Without me, you can do nothing. In the realm of sexual morality, as in the realm of liturgical morality, we have given a compelling demonstration of what we can accomplish without Christ and without his gift of tradition, namely, nothing. Signs of hope. But we need not conclude on a dark note. We know that everything that happens is either a good willed by God because it is pleasing to him, or an evil permitted by God, who in his omnipotence can bring forth some greater good from it, for example, by the testing of the saints and the purification of the church. Are we in a position to see some of the goods he has drawn out of the divine permission of the, of the liturgical revolution and its diabolical elements? First, precisely because of its near extinction, 
The traditional liturgy has never been more loved, treasured, studied, and promoted as it, as it is now on the part of those who are working and suffering to restore it to the place of honor it deserves. From what I can tell in my historical research, the greatness of the authentic liturgy seems to have been too often covered over by a compromised and complacent Ars Celebrandi, or too much taken for granted as an immovable piece of furniture in the rambling old Catholic mansion. One sees in the Old Testament that the Lord frequently deprives his people of goods of which they no longer strive to be worthy and for which they seldom or never thank him. Second, I believe that we are capable of being much more on our guard now. The enemy of human nature has shown his cards, and we are better prepared to detect his wiles. I would include in this category the flurry of thinking and writing that has taken place in recent years about the inherent limits of papal authority, the obligation of the Pope to act as servant of the servants of God, rather than an Oriental or South American despot, and the interconnection between liturgy, dogma, and morality. As time goes on, I have no doubt that the truth of the axiom lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi will be made manifest in a blazing light of obviousness that will swell the ranks of Catholic traditionalists and expose the modernism of their opponents past all gainsaying. Third, we have now lived, we now have a lived experience of what happens when the principles of liturgy are distorted or discarded. Never before has such a tragic experiment been attempted. But since the laws of nature and of grace always remain the same from age to age, the experiment was doomed to fail. The rotten fruits of the post-conciliar tree are plain for all to see. This painful experience has made us both more cautious and, in many cases, more insistent on good liturgy, on careful celebration, on appropriate adornments in the sanctuary, splendid vestments, and well-executed sacred music. One might say, those who care, care more. Each liturgically vibrant parish or chapel, each observant monastery or convent, each faithful Catholic school, each level-headed society or association, by putting into practice the liturgical little way, remaining faithful to the smallest details of tradition, will have its part to play in the unexpected triumph of David, warrior and singer, over the swaggering Goliath of fabricated liturgy. Thank you very much. from you or comments. Sorry, just that last image, it's not a profession, the last image had me thinking of Goliath in like a, a really ugly polyester chasuble or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> With peace sign on. Yeah. Actually, that one works. So Peter, I'm very struck by the little phrase you Something, there's a mystery here 
Christ the bridegroom, his bride, the church. And out of that bridal submission, um, there, 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 there comes an extraordinary supernatural fecundity. It is at every level in the life of the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I, I think that um, what, what struck me was these passages in Mother Mechtild that where she's talking, she's obviously talking about the small things of everyday life, you know, picking up a leaf, sweeping the dust, you know, straightening your tie, whatever, you know, you just little things throughout the day, just like St. Therese is talking about. But as I was reading her, her comments, the liturgical application of it just kept hitting me again and again. It's true that I think a lot about, about this, uh, this topic. So that's, that's not surprising, but it, you know, she, she, she says, and she says somewhere else that I didn't quote. Um, she says something like, "I would rather pick up sticks at the command of the Lord than convert the whole world by the ardor of my own faith." Mm. Um, and and that's that's the idea I have, right? You know, so you, sometimes people talk about, "Oh, new evangelization, this and that, and you know, flashing lights and glamorous conferences and all this kind of stuff." And what they're thinking of, they're thinking about the big picture, but they're not thinking about picking up sticks. They're not thinking about walking up to the altar, putting your right foot first, you know, bowing in just the right way. I'm not talking about formalism for its own sake, but I'm talking about this kind of submission to the, to the rule of another so that, like Christ, you can be completely, um, you, you put yourself completely at the disposal of Christ and the church, and you don't take any glory or any credit to yourself. You know, you, just, like Father, just like Father Knox was saying, right, Monsignor Knox, um, being a, a tool, a tool of Christ, you know. Um, and I think there's a great power to that for myself in my life and, and in the lives of many people I know who've discovered traditional liturgy over the years. One of the things that is most um, impressive to us when we discover the, the old mass and the old sacraments in general is that there, there's an immense humility about the whole liturgy. There's, there's no, um, even in a high mass, it's, it's, there's no flashiness for its own sake. Everything is ordered to the, the glorification and adoration of God. And it, and it, it hits you it, it very forcefully that that's the case and humbles you and puts you in a position of, of, uh, of, of receptivity towards that. And I think it's very uncomfortable for a lot of people uh, at first um, because we're, we're so used to having a kind of Pelagian religion you know, of our own making and uh, you know, we're going to fix all the problems and we're going to demonstrate our faith and we're going to sing about how great we are and all these sorts of things. And, and, and none of that, that, there's nothing like that in the, in the or the, at least there shouldn't be anything like that. But generally speaking, there isn't anything like that in the traditional liturgy. I mean, speaking as a, a Northern person in the church and who's found the tradition of Mass again, I mean, everything you said, of course, is speaking to the experience now rather than just something you read in a book. You mm-hmm. have the actual experience. And what you're saying about Lex Arandi, um, if people were praying like they prayed when we had the tradition of Mass, their lives were different. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. society was different, I think. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So it just emphasizes the importance of true liturgy in mm-hmm. our lives. Mm-hmm. And the obedience to the Lex Orandi as transmitted in the tradition is what assures and guarantees the righteousness of doctrine, mm-hmm. which then assures and guarantees uh, right living. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, so lex orandi, lex credendi, lex credendi. Uh, in that in that precise order. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that's, so it begins with submission mm-hmm. to the with this, this submission in little things. Yes. In the and it's also just unmistakably the case that when you attend a, a, a low mass or a high mass in the in the traditional form, that it's obvious that you're there to pray and you're there for God. There's no other reason to be there. Uh, and and as a result, this is really this is really a, a way to live. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these other things will be added to you. And that's that, that's what I find on a day when I'm able to go to mass. It's this. Um, it's this center of stillness, of, of focus on God, that actually enables me to orient the rest of my life. Right? It, it's the it's the it's the linchpin that holds everything else together. Uh, that's not and that's true not only of the mass but also of the divine office. If I'm not able to make it to mass, you know, just praying prime in the morning or vespers in the evening, it's it has this grounding and stabilizing effect, which I think is when you talked about the social the society is different. I mean, a society that has that centering on the liturgy is going to look very different from a society that either doesn't have it at all, which is the case with, with Western Europe today, or a society that has a liturgy that really can't be that stable and center, you know, that is is actually a kind of a microcosm of just what's going on in the world. That's a problem, right? When the when what's going on in church is really just a kind of reflection of what's going on in the world, right? Then it doesn't doesn't have the power uh, to, to function the way it's supposed to. Yeah. This is related to that. I've always wondered if, if I have a friend of mine who, who uh, uh, has said, "Well, I just think Christian morality is is, um, uh, is sort of a, a function of ritual purity." And I think that's overstated, but I like the idea of it, and I almost want mm-hmm. to see if, if it could be um, developed in, in a certain way. In, in other words, that uh, you know, the moral law is not just this kind of like thing yeah. here. Like it's, it's so often uh, we speak of it, but the the moral life comes from uh, a true and proper and fruitful participation in the liturgy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Christian morality, that, that other kinds of moralities are that's a very different thing. Uh, and the related issue uh, would be uh, we were just talking about theology of the body, and you were talking about how it's this like labyrinthine sort of, you know. Uh, thing that was worked out by St. John Paul II, God bless him, that I'm sure was very needed, but it seems to me that it's it's trying to figure out what the body's for in the absence of, 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 a, of a proper liturgical piety, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. bodily piety, yes. which would then, you know, feeds into how we behave sexually and, and, and things like this. Right. In the Orthodox Church, in traditional Orthodox societies, um, you know, you do not have uh, sexual relations uh, during Lent, during Advent, and on the night before you receive the the, the, the Divine Eucharist. And so there's no need for elaborate theories of, of, of uh, you know, uh, natural family planning and all, all these kinds of things. I mean, it is natural, but it's a byproduct of simply, you know, the, the bodily asceticism that goes into a worthy participation in the sacred liturgy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, these are very fragmentary ideas, but I, I feel like there's something there. No, there's a lot there. I mean, one thing that one thing I, I touched on um, today, uh, and and I I would really like to go into this more at some point in the future when 
when the possibility offers. Uh, namely, the, the way in which Old Testament worship is a, is a blueprint for New Testament worship. Yeah. I know you're interested in that as well, yes. Margaret Barker and so yes. on. Um, but I, I think that uh, I still think there's a lot of work to be done in that area. And yeah. Of course, the fathers of the church thought about it a lot more than we tend to do because it, te- it seems to be characteristic of our age either to exaggerate the antithesis of Christianity and Judaism just to make them totally different or to yes. minimize the differences, two covenants, yes. two ways, two paths, whatever. Um, but, but in reality, what's going on is, is that if you look carefully at the law, the law is almost every aspect of the law is ordered towards ritual purity. That is to say, to be ready to participate or to offer some sacrifice, either to offer a sacrifice or to partake of the fruits of a sacrifice. Yes. And so the, the entire mosaic law is really ordered towards offering right worship to God. Yeah. And that gives a that gives a, a kind of purpose or teleology for every single rule, even yeah. some of the ones that seem rather arbitrary. Yeah. They're they're all pointing towards the worship of God. So that at any moment you can say, why am I being moral? It's so that I can worship God. Why am I worshiping yeah. God? So I can be his I can belong to him. I can be united to him ultimately it's about love. Right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that, that's one thought. The other thought you made about sort of asceticism and and the Eastern tradition. Um, I know the Western Church may never have had that, but I think it's very useful. No, no, but we did have all, we had we had many things. So for example the Eucharistic fast yeah. Um, yeah. is, you know, it, it's true that that so, so St. Thomas extensively defends the proposition that the first food that should enter anyone's mouth is the is the mm-hmm. whole is the blessed sacrament, mm-hmm. um, and therefore that that's how he understands the fast from you know from midnight from the night before, the and 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 then that's why he one of the reasons why he uh, recommends having mass you know earlier rather than later in the day so that the fast won't be too burdensome, uh, but but there you see uh, a, I think a really profound understanding of the hierarchy of goods mm-hmm. and supernatural bread. Um, above and, and the it's natural bread. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, and all these things. Yeah, yeah. You know, everything's taken care of. But uh, yeah, Peter, this is not unrelated to what you said last year of the ecstatic mm-hmm. uh, quality of, of true worship out of ourselves. Mm-hmm. And what what keeps coming to mind is the recurrence of the word "te" in the sacred liturgy. Te deum laudamus, te decet laus, te igi dur clementissime pater. There's mm-hmm. this wonderful. Adoramus te, glorificamus te. Right. Do you know, just yeah. just that word speaks yeah. volumes about where we're going in life. Right. Yes. Well, <laughs> exactly. And you find the word ego in the liturgy. Yes. <laughs> Chances are, it's it's our Lord speaking through us. Mm, yes. It's not. Yeah. And you know, last summer, I, my talk here was uh, talked. I, I spoke a lot about ad orientem, the, the Eastern orientation of worship, and and why that's so uh, crucial to a proper theology and anthropology. Um, uh, but, you know, I, I was just struck by your comment about the focus on the Lord, that um, there really is a huge cognitive dissonance when a, when a, when a priest is um, facing the people but addressing God. That's a huge cognitive dissonance. Uh, and, and I realize that there are situations in which perhaps that can't, that's a problem that can't be fixed immediately. But it is a cognitive dissonance. Um, I know. I know uh, uh, a number of people have told me this that when they were growing up as children, they were confused by the fact that 
they heard the priest speaking to God, but but he was looking at them and talking to them. I mean, what's going on here? This doesn't make any sense. You know, uh, that's just a, that's the most superficial level of the problem. It goes deeper and deeper and deeper beyond that. Um, but yeah, so I, I think in a way, unfortunately, in the Western Church right now, because of the things I talked about, optionitis and and extemporaneity and these sorts of things. Um, we've lost a real connection between what we're saying and how we're acting with our bodies. Mm-hmm. Our, our bodily actions and the concepts are not in sync anymore. Yeah. Uh, and this is a serious problem. If, if, you, if somebody walks up to an altar kind of sauntering up to it, you know, you see this without any sense of formality, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. What does that say? Right? It, it's yeah. speaking a message that's in conflict with what we hold in our faith. So the Lex Arandi, Lex Credendi, it's like a train crash. You know? exactly. So I think this is... Earthen Vessels by Gabriel Bunge. No, I've seen it though. Um, it's a very interesting book, but one of the points that he makes in it is that you know the, the, the dissipation of the faith in the West has largely to do with the abandonment of bodily attitudes of prayer. Mm. That it's, it's, not, it's not that, you know, our, our idea sometimes is, oh, okay, we're thinking badly about the liturgy, so the thinking issues in bad practices... But he says, no, it's actually bad practices that inform bad thinking and, and, and destroy the faith. So, you know, as incarnate beings, that's where things begin for us. Even as children, you know, with, with the very basic sort of physical things. Right. But, well, Kat, I mean, I know this is going to sound harsh, but I think it's true that no matter how good catechesis is on a conceptual level mm-hmm. if the bodily gestures are not there yeah. it's probably not going to stick yeah. so if, if you say to somebody this this little host, this wafer is is God uh-huh. but then you don't fall to your knees in front of it in, yeah. in adoration and reverence mm-hmm. uh, but then how, how is that message supposed to stick? I, I, see, no, I see no possible way that that would, that that would work um, Peter, I want to thank you for calling attention to Mother Catherine MacTilde de Bach, who is the, um, some of you may not know, she's the Teresa of Avila, the Benedictine 17th century French Benedictine mystic and reformer. And uh, you've also made the link, uh, Mother MacTilde and, and uh, Therese of, of the Child Jesus. Um, and she is, in fact, a herald of, of the Little Way. And your application of Mother McTill's teaching to the literature is, 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 is brilliant.